So good evening. Thank you for coming out. I wonder how many of you have heard many uh, talks on the awareness of mind and mental states. Could you see a show of hands for people who've heard lots of those? People who haven't heard many, just a few? Never heard one before? Okay, uh-oh. Well. So the mind lost and found. Um, my normal composition style is somewhat intuitive, and I thought that I would be more organized to write this talk, and it actually turned into something that feels more chaotic than usual. So <laughs> we'll see what happens here. But um, awareness of the mind and what's going on in our mind is something very valuable, just sort of for ordinary life. Um, let's say when we know maybe what it was that pushed us into saying something that um, later on didn't work out or something like that. It's like, it's because I really wanted this to happen or something like that. It can be very good just in terms of ordinary um, balance in our life. And also um, in the meditation practice, it can be very interesting, subtle, and lead us into very profound understanding and liberation and um, to feel free within our mind and not as reactive to the craziness that it gets up to. That's why I put lost in there, lost your mind. Does anyone um, ever have the feeling that you lost it or sort of partially lost it or really did lose it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How recently? (laughs) Day before yesterday, we'll say maybe... Um, So there's various kinds of being lost. You could almost say there's the kind of being lost that comes um, when we're distracted from our intention in meditation. Like you sit down and try to meditate, and almost the first thing that you learn is that you cannot stay with what you think that you're supposed to be meditating on. Like usually we start off with the breath or just being present, and then um, the mind wanders off. Like I just taught a retreat a few weeks ago, and I was teaching this mindfulness of the breath and I was counting how many breaths I was aware of in one sitting and it was like four in 45 minutes <laughs> so I was thinking well you know good I'm you know I'm with everyone but I'm also um, when I meditate I'm also aware of the mind when the mind goes away from the breath and that's kind of what makes mindfulness of mind very valuable because when your meditation starts to include everything that happens in your experience, then you don't fall out of your meditation, even if you're not uh, with your breath. So just as a very simple beginning, um, as we open into uh, awareness of the mind as a concrete practice suggestion, I think we all, if we've meditated much at all, there's that moment where you notice that you're not aware you're kind of, or your mind is doing something else. It's all wrapped up in itself. You know, it's all gone, so-called, off somewhere. And you're because you're meditating, you suddenly go, oh, oh, where was I? Like that. And um, when that happens, as a practical instruction, to sort of stop and include whatever the thought was or wherever you went as part of the meditation, like notice what the mind was doing. So that can enlarge the scope. Like a lot of times we sort of try to come back to the breathing like a rubber band, like really snap back there. And first there's the moment of like, oh, 
I'm lost. And that's actually often a very like slightly insightful like moment where you're like, wow, look what the mind does. And, um, and then they can often be, um, especially for the first 50 years of meditation, a certain sense of dismay and saying like, oh, I should go back to my breath now. And then you kind of pull yourself back like a dog that really wants to be sniffing a bush. Um, let yourself sniff the bush a little longer and know that it's a bush, I'll say. <laughs> I, I was just reading in the um, New York Times Sunday Magazine re- to this week that they're teaching mice how to meditate. Do you guys, do you guys read that? <laughs> Using cellular manipulation with uh, LED or laser lights. And this I know because um, I've met some neurobiologists involves dissecting the mouse's brain and stuff like that. But they seem to be able to induce something that's meditation-like in the mice. Um, So soon coming to a meditation center near you will be something like a tanning bed (laughs) where they just, like, shine lights on you and stuff and inject you with mouse brain cells. But it's just to show, like, the human human beings are really nuts. Like, um, (laughs) the mice don't run for the shadows, and they, they've assumed that that means that the mice are less anxious. But do you think that's really good for mice to not be running away? If, you know, anyway, so. Um, but meditation, we would like to say, is, um, is good for us. It may, it's not necessarily easy, and it's not without its kind of dangers and misconceptions. But I'd like to begin, sort of um, re-begin, with the um, definition of the awareness of mind in the Pali canon, in the original teachings, as we've received them anyway, Um, especially to talk about what um, word is used for mind. It's called citta, and it encompasses um, heart and mind. And I like that word. It also sounds like kind of like a beautiful word for like a name for a person, citta. Um, When in Buddhist psychology we talk about mind, um, it's the better translation is heart-mind. And in Buddhist cultures, Asian cultures, my friend Larry Yang's father, when he, um, re- Larry reports that when his father would say, I was thinking of something, he'll say, I was thinking, thinking of something not like this, or tapping his chest instead. And there's something about that that does often make us feel more integrated to think of the heart and the mind together. Um, And there's all these different definitions sloshing around in this that um, it means feelings, it means thoughts, it's both heart and mind. Um, And in our culture, heart tends to mean emotions or feeling or love, you know, like I heart New York or something like that. I adore New York, right? Your heart is there. Um, And the mind for us means, um, often will mean intellect, like what a fine mind that person had. Um, that is not outside the realm of definition, but the definition of mind for Buddhist psychology and for meditation practice is more um, the ability to know, the ability to experience and to look at what's going on and feel it and know it, Um, which is part of the way that our mind works. It actually is what allows us to experience anything. Like that would be the, the most, essential definition that and that comes close to the notion of what heart is it's something that's in the center it's like the the core so the heart of the mind 
is this ability to be aware and awake to what's going on and to know what's going on. It doesn't exclude all the faculties of recollection and reflection and planning and all the abilities that um, the mental brain has. It's kind of like a grab bag definition, but this ability to be aware and awake is really what we're training in and over uh, overtraining in a sense in meditation, this uh, ability to be present. And I think that um, to start the talk, to initiate the description of mind from this awareness piece is maybe the most subtle part of it um, that we can know. It's kind of compared to seeing or seeing light. That what is it that lights up our experience? We could be like robots or zombies or something and just go through life and do everything without knowing uh, anything. But ultimately life is registering upon us. And as it registers upon us, it registers very symphonically through all the senses, through the mental experiences and the emotions. And it's tremendously, tremendously complex. And our mind is very much networked into the environment and into what we eat and into how our body feels and stuff like that. So it's not a completely independent like thing that you'll look in there and you'll find the mind, you know, or even awareness. But this ability to be aware is really critical. And it's kind of when we train in it and we develop this ability to be aware of what's happening in the moment and just to know it, mindfulness as we call it mind maybe we it's good because we could call it mindfulness like there's this extra deliberately generated awareness where we start to um, work with our attention and aim it at things and you know open up and receive experience in a more intimate sensitive way but it's both more intimate and sensitive and it's also imbued with a kind of matter of fact quality Um, mindfulness is the other day, my husband and I, he's retiring from being a professor, and we had to go to the benefits office and talk about you know, the ongoingness or the non-ongoingness of um, health insurance. And there was this receptionist, and the place is sort of a maze in all these different cubicles and offices and stuff. And at the end, when we were trying to leave, he got a little bit confused. I was not confused. Like, I knew the door was over there, but he kind of like walked into somebody's desk and then he said, well, well, you sure have a weird office or something like that. <laughs> you know, like you're kind of stuck here in this odd position. And the person said, um, yeah, it is what it is. You know, and there's a little bit of mindfulness like that, which is to be able to say it is what it is. It may be good, it may be bad, but she was expressing that she doesn't hate it. She just lives with whatever it is, having people stumble into her desk. And maybe it's not as bad as what my husband's experience was kind of dictating at the moment. So with mindfulness, as we bring our awareness, there is a capacity for a type of accuracy in awareness, like just as it is, and um, I can even um, find that place in experience, that the experience is just as it is. So that is um, kind of important for us. And the other parts of mindfulness are that Um, it doesn't judge it doesn't blame it doesn't it's not being aware of something in order then to 
um, categorize it or something. There's a kind of openness of lack of commentary because what subsequently happens when we're not particularly mindful of something, then the, the rest of our mind will start to attach a lot of different things to it. Like I was... Um, emotions and thoughts and interpretations which move in and out of each other. So to go back to the definition of citta as heart-mind, a lot of times those um, faculties of ourselves will move in and out of each other too. Like, say, um, I was not here for the first 15 minutes of the sitting. Now, for some people that may have been fine. You might not have even not noticed Others might have wondered where I was. Others might have thought, well, this is fine. You know, hope someone comes and rings the bell. I'm just sitting here with my eyes shut. Anyway, others might say, like, where is the teacher? You know, like, someone's supposed to be leading the sitting. And um, I was a little bit in my feeling of, like, oh, God. You know, like, I, now I'm supposed to be this role model, and I'm late. So mind lost and found. I had... Um, been supposed to sign some documents for CIMC and I noticed at the last minute and I called and because they said please bring them with and I said I forgot them and they said you better get over here I said someone else can leave the sitting no there's no one to leave the sitting you better get over here so the documents are at my house so one of those kinds of things so I was observing my mind getting emotional <laughs> about it you know so like when someone isn't there someone uh, doesn't appear at the time that they said or doesn't call back. You know, it is what it is. It's just that they're not calling. But it could be that something's, um, you know, we've, we start to wonder, is something wrong? What could have happened um, to them? Are they all right? Or is it about me? You know, what have I said? You know, especially if you don't get your email answered correctly in the right uh, period of time. There can be just so many interpretations and emotional interpretations that go and they are occurring um, based on an outer circumstance that is just of someone not being there and we don't know and how often have we all found that um, I mean sometimes it's true that something terrible has happened to someone that's always a possibility our mind is um, aware of that but very often the reason why this thing didn't happen is other than one imagines. Um, and one can also learn to calm oneself down by saying this has happened before and it often isn't this catastrophizing, gigantic disaster, failure thing. Near my house, there's a house full of artists who have, um, they decorate their home, they have... Um, they build an archway outside it, and it has lights at night. And sometimes it, you know, it's a little team of robots, or it's a. Dra- they make their opening of their house into a dragon's mouth and stuff like that. They also have these toys that are in the back, like a. Um, they have a pumpkin catapult that launches a, cu- a pumpkin, and they take it to competitions and stuff. And they're a very funny group of people. <laughs> and they have this um, plastic seeing eye dog that's hiding in the hedge. <laughs> it's sitting there. It's like a little Labrador or something. It's a life-size, and it's wearing a, a seeing-eye dog's harness. And I have passed by that thing, you know, 50 times because it's, it's just the corner that I walk around and stuff like that. And nearly every time, it startles me. Like, I have this animal-like reaction that there's this big dog in the hedge. And then I look at it, and it's like, oh, it's just that thing. And then I'm slightly amused because 
I think that the intention of having this friendly Labrador sculpture with a seeing eye harness on it is actually endearing in their minds. But in between <laughs> why they put it there and what happened for me is like this other moment, <laughs> you know? And I think there's this kind of animalistic mind that is worried about threats that's actually before the, some of the other perceptions, you know, that like we might be patterned to see certain things faster than others. And so when you start to study your mind, you can see that there are kind of like these layers and add-ons and things that it does that are, sort of has its own habit of peculiarity. Of um, Some of it feels organic, like the perception of the dog. Some of it feels very cultural, like today I was reading about, I was in the car and hearing that um, Taiwan might legalize same-sex marriage and be the first country in Asia that legalizes same-sex marriage. And it led me to reflect on how uh, much the expansion of the idea that it's totally fine um, is influencing our world and what a good spread that is. And even how, for myself, that um, the changes of law and the understanding and the compassion and the like normalization of it is what it is like people can love all kinds of ways and it's fine and it's really love it's not like something weird it's love you know and um should be given all the privileges of other you know existing pre-existing opposite gender unions has made me more feel more tolerant and understand also how you know, there st still may be strong beliefs that this is something terrible, you know? So you can kind of see that there's perceptions and emotions and laws and internal and external structures that influence our mind and our experience. And sometimes we do need to be taught or informed in our life. Like, we don't come in with a complete, perfect operating system usually. So does that make sense so far about the interaction of emotion and thought? It's something that um, can be very freeing when you see that you're having emotions based on a thought or a fantasy or a belief. Like, I think about the uh, end of the world quite frequently, and it's not a happy thought, <laughs> really, you know. I think that, you know, that spring is coming differently and all the climate is changing and I've gone online to see um, when the sea level rises how many feet it will take before my house is inundated which is six like it's fine up until five and then with six you know <laughs> thoughts and feelings future projections and they may not you know be completely wrong um, they may not be completely erroneous but also the mind and heart can really um hurt itself through all this stuff. Like you can um, damage your body with um, having too many difficult thoughts and it affects your heart, it can affect your digestion, it can affect your energy. And so when we can be with mindfulness about this and just say, well, there is a, here's a thought about the future. It's not a happy thought. It's actually an all-enveloping, all-encompassing, disastrous prediction um, and you can sort of say, well, this is, a, this is just a thought. This is a thought that I'm having in the present moment. And it doesn't have to remove its um, possible validity. Like, you don't have to blame your mind for having these ideas, but you can kind of tone down the 
emotionality and have space to make a kind of decision about whether you're going to persist with this thought and feeling or if you're going to do something and go buy a house on top of a mountain, then you can do that, but, which I'm not doing. Um, Ajahn Mahabua, the great Thai forest master, um, who was the teacher of Ajahn Chah, who some of you may know about, um, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher and also one of the sort of this is the Thai forest lineage in which many of us have learned and taught. I have to find the quote that I wrote down from him. He's speaking about um, the core awareness, this um, experiential mind, the mind that's able to know. And although it may seem the most subtle and the most elusive, and it actually is formless because it can take the form of any experience, um, it's not um, stuck like that. It's a very, very powerful thing. And he, Ajahn Mahabua says it's the most precious and powerful um, thing in existence. Otherwise, it would have disintegrated long ago. It's very solid and lasting enough to stand up to the onslaught of the various things that are always coming into contact with it, namely all the sights and sounds and smells and tastes, tactile sensation that flow in through the body. These things gather in at our mind the same way that rivers flow together and gather in the sea. Besides this, all sorts of worthless and filthy preoccupations can come flowing into the mind at all times, turning it from something precious into a trash can. <laughs> it's that old-time religion. <laughs> but I don't know if your mind has ever felt like the trash can. I'm certain, I will say that mine has felt that way at times. But if you rest back into the awareness of what's taking place, it changes, uh, changes the relationship. So what I'm going to talk about now is um, we see that there's um, lots of things can flow through our mind, the joys and the sorrows of life. Um, we're very much, um, we give a lot of importance to how our mind feels. And we uh, really prioritize joy and we turn away more from things that are painful. Um, and sometimes that is not necessarily so good for us. And sometimes we get stuck in places. But one of the things that our mind can tend to do is when things feel like they're not really working in some way or another, um, try to muscle out of it. Does anyone notice that? Like Tell yourself, like, I really wish that I wasn't so mad right now. I, I hate how angry I feel. I, um, or when you're meditating and your mind is really distracted and you has a lot of energy, let's say, and you want it to go back to the breath and it kind of won't, or it won't stay there. Um, and when you're not feeling the way that you want to feel, so you can be angry about being angry, depressed about being depressed, um, self-congratulating about being happy, like I finally figured this one out, life, the the game of life, I'm on the top right now, and um, like that. So there's possibility of secondary reactions inside of our mind, right? Um, those are really good to pay attention to. So it, there can be a piece of our practice that says, whether it's an internal or an external situation, to actually ask yourself, how am I relating to this situation? Like, what's going on? in my mind, say the situation is here. Um, and we're not going to discuss like right now that um, all of our 
capacity to change it or where our will is able to actually have an influence. But let's say um, there's someone in our life who isn't being the way we want them to be or, and maybe they never will be. Have we ever met any such a person? <laughs> Has everyone met that person? <laughs> And some of them are public figures and some of them are your, your siblings or your parents or your, sometimes yourself. Um, and have we, has anyone ever seen how much we can get trapped into a kind of really terrible cycle by the hope that if I just be nice enough or if I just write this letter with a lot of clarity or et cetera, um, they'll change or I'll change, or I'll stop feeling as, it's just, we'll stop feeling as impossible as it is. And what would happen if, in that relationship, um, the wanting of that situation to be different uh, were softer, like sometimes, um, just to give up hope about it, like many times we've tested the person over and over and over, and we've also tested ourselves with different positions that we assume, like when we're meeting them, like, what if I do this, you know? Um, maybe this will work. Um, maybe if I just don't talk about X or something like that. Um, but is it possible to actually see the being as they are if they don't seem to be changing? And especially they don't seem to be changing based on our um, attempts to let them be as they are and still be kind? Even if it means, now this is the other thing about mindfulness of mind, uh, feeling something that's difficult, like losing the belief that they might change, or that we might get what we need or get what we want or feel better about it or feel closer to them or feel that they understand us and see us. So the hopes and fears, the kind of subconscious uh, hopes and fears by which our mind is ruled, sometimes we can get access to those and with mindfulness and a lot of kindness and compassion sometimes we can endure the letting go that takes place and to see the person and still um, be kind to them and enjoy what there is there to enjoy I, I have a stepmother and I've had two and one of them I really loved and one of them um, God forbid this goes on Dharma Seed oh. but she doesn't listen to Dharma <laughs> but sometimes I could say that I wish that that person would phone me and um, rather than expect to be phoned all the time. And they're not very, you know, I could say they're not very good at reaching out. And if I want a relationship with that person, then I'm going to have to initiate everything. And then there's a conversation that's uh, fun and friendly and stuff, and then it kind of stops until the next time I call. So I've gotten bent out of shape in this one, as you might imagine my father has died and I kind of feel like I'd like to have some kind of family like it doesn't feel so good to me to just say like if I just don't call and this just will disappear you know so I want that and but then I started feeling like I'm just kind of inventing this fake family like one of those monkeys in a lab that hugs the little wire mother you know and <laughs> you know it didn't feel so good but what I realized was I kind of stopped for a while and then I thought, well, you know, this person really isn't good at reaching out. And what if I called just kind of like for them to call them up so that they would have someone calling them, not because I want to have a family, but because I think 
they might want one. And it felt completely different. It actually felt really good because I could see that they were actually pleased by the call um, and that it brightened their day. I could hear and they didn't want to hang up like they went on and on. And, and I said, well, if we, you know, if we start talking about your work for the Democratic Party, I think we'll be here for the rest of the day, but we'll talk about it in our next call. So we did. You know, so it was just a, a interesting thing within myself of seeing the place where my mind got stuck. So what one of the quadrants in which mind can get lost is when it gets really stuck with something and when you like it gets overwhelmed with a desire or a dislike or a need and it, that kind of often starts to redouble itself and then your mind starts to react to the strength of of what's wanted or what's disliked and it's this kind of, um, it's almost like an inherited weakness or something that um, we shy away from things so much, like we're so afraid of having certain feelings and stuff that we're actually um, able to open more than we know and able to be free more than we know. So underneath all this internal kind of mental disturbance is often an unwillingness to feel. Um, some people are afraid to feel joy because it opens you up and it doesn't feel like it's going to be safe because it's different from what you're used to. And many of us don't like to feel difficult things in the mind. But with the growth of the ability of mindfulness or the opening of the heart and mind, like the the mind, maybe let's say the clarity that can kind of pinpoint um, that what's difficult and the heart that will approach it and hold it and kind of attune to the being who's feeling this um, and attune to the feeling. There can be some really tremendous growth that happens in there and freedom and kind of happier. I feel like I came to the right relationship with my stepmom through this type of practice and it can happen. So the other day I had this, I'm writing a book and I had this kind of huge mental like thing, like I was being interrupted by something and I was really supposed to be writing the last pages and stuff. So I could say that it was approaching a mental insanity. Like, it was really wild. Like, And I have the feeling that in my own creative process that reining it in and becoming calm doesn't really help. Like there's something that needs to assemble itself that's a type of internal energy that is not calm at all. It's almost like being in a rage. And if someone crosses me at the wrong time, they might think that I was in a rage. (laughs) And I noticed through the accumulation of awareness practice, like usually this thing kind of really sweeps me away. And I've compared it to being like the Incredible Hulk in the comic book. You know, it's like I'm turning into the writer, watch out, (laughs) you know. Um, And inside it's quite difficult but it's also kind of fun because there's this all this kind of electrical activity happening or something like that and for the first time I think my mind uh, fullness had grown to where it could sort of started to see this happening and feel like um, it didn't mean that I was kind of like this weird grotesque raging monster attached to creativity and trampling everything and not eating and getting up at two and staying up till seven and there's something wrong with this and that kind of stuff. And it was kind of like I felt like there was a floor under it with awareness that didn't really impede the thing from rolling forward. So it was really, for myself, kind of cool. So 
I would say that as your mindfulness gets stronger or as the practice gets stronger, it's almost like it starts to develop a, a kind of um, energy of its own. So when we talk about chitta or heart-mind in Chinese medicine, it's considered to have a type of energy, and so does mindfulness. It's not exactly like in the Western dictionary, this mind or awareness is a noun. And in Buddhism, it's more like a verb. It's something that has life to it. And although we seem like we're blocking it out in our meditation practice, um, it actually does accumulate, and sometimes it sort of jumps onto things by itself. Um, and it suddenly becomes aware of something that you didn't know you could be aware of. Probably that happens early in practice. I remember I was teaching a group of young people who were all like the first person in their um, family to go to college. It was over in that building in Somerville that says Shrafts on top, you know, that you see when you're coming from the airport. And they were quiet for about five minutes and one of them said, oh my God, I heard the clock. I've never heard the clock before, right in the middle of the meditation. And they were so excited by the, you know, the, the how something can appear so pristine when you're meditating, I think, where your mind gets a little bit quiet and all of a sudden you hear something or see something in a new way and it's really kind of like a discovery. Um, so that can happen just as if the ticking of the clock announces the nature of life, but it can also be a tremendous emotional and mental liberation process through this. Then there are also those um, joyous times, and there are also those kind of neutrally boring times, and the neutrally boring times when you're just walking up and down um, the sidewalk may um, seem like some of the hardest ones to work with because things that feel intense, either joyously or depressingly, we can kind of organize ourselves around it and we have projects about it or we work with it or we look for help or we just super enjoy it and stuff like that. But the in-between times, part of what um, we can do with our awareness is also give it some suggestions. Like, let's say if you're feeling... um, angry about being angry, and you can kind of detect that. You can say, well, you can sort of say to yourself, well, it's okay, this is just anger or something. You can have some little things that you say, or be kind to the, be kind, this is really a difficult experience. And with things like boredom or neutral states, um, they mostly tend to disappear from our attention, and we start looking for something to get into, like our phone, for example. I mean, how much has that become a cultural thing that anytime anybody's waiting or sitting anywhere, even in a restaurant, they're bored enough with whoever they're with that they're texting someone else about who they're with. I know that's become a little bit of a Buddhist teacher. (laughs) But but it's true. Um, Everyone's on their phone all the time, like um, looking for maybe some kind of connection or gratification or what's that thing brain chemical, that gratification thing, endorphins. What? Dopamine, that's it. Yeah, we can get very tricked by dopamine and the wish for dopamine. That's why people order so much stuff online, too. (laughs) You have to train yourself to enjoy getting rid of things, um, too. That, too, was was in the Sunday Globe a minute um, last week, where the the pleasure and deliciousness of letting go is a little more subtle than the pleasure of 
getting something. But then getting something that doesn't fit and having to go over to the UPS store and drop it off is really not fun. <laughs> so the next, um, I'll go a little bit shorter about um, think, the thinking process and thoughts. We've, this is kind of, um, I'm finished with the emotion one. Um, I'd like to make a comment about Western Buddhist teaching culture where um, I've heard in many talks that there's no word for emotions in, um, in the cultural language from which we come, but maybe if we use heart-mind, these movements of the heart-mind, we don't need a word for emotion. I think it's acknowledged that it's part of the heart in a way. There's feeling. But in English, the word for thoughts does not have a correlate in uh, Pali language. There is no such thing as a thought. Um, there's an, there are intentions and mental images of different kinds. They might be kind of somatic images, or they might be pictures, or they might be memories, or they might be predictions. But thoughts um, don't necessarily exist distinct from all these other mental states and sort of forces in the mind that direct the mind in different ways. So, but I'm still going to talk about thoughts. <laughs> As if they were real. So one of the illustrations for how to be aware of thoughts um, or the process an analogy or image is um, as if we're sitting on the bank of a river in the shade, which is like you're invited to pay attention to something neutral like your breath and you're sitting there under a tree and all of a sudden you know, the party boat goes by with the lights and everybody's drinking and dancing on there and you're kind of like, wow, it'd be a lot more fun to hop on that one. So you go. And suddenly, down the road or down the river, which is time, suddenly you're like, how did I get on this party boat? I thought I was supposed to be sitting on there on the tree. And so then you say, like, could you please let me off at the next thing? Sit down under a tree again. And then the next thing that comes by is the, I don't know, the prison ship or something like that. And you're like, oh my god, this horrible prison ship. And you end up jumping on that one. That's a little bit what happens with thinking, like how we get drawn into thoughts and a little bit um, seductive. Has anyone noticed that? That there's a seduction or you kind of get pulled away um, from the breath. Sometimes you don't even remember how long ago did this happen. And one of my friends, Jean Ann, said um, it, she, she was in a state of good awareness, but she said it was nine thought leaps from the call of a bird to wishing she was born in a different family. <laughs> <laughs> But most thoughts will have some kind of intentionality or some kind of um, feeling tone in them, too. Um, So we sort of decriminalize getting lost in thoughts. We say just as much as our emotional life is not subject to uh, the control of the neocortex or whatever, that's a actual structural brain thing is your mind will keep saying like stop feeling this way and it doesn't work telling yourself to stop thinking or imagining that meditation is about not thinking um, also doesn't work there's a way that um, this chitta or heart mind has the energy to produce thoughts it's a little bit like um, one of the 
I feel like writing one of the Buddhist scholars because I am right about this, but the uh, good translation of the sense bases should be sense generators, like your eyes and your ears and stuff like that. They generate sensory experience. There's an almost like a physical energy that happens, and your brain also generates experiences um, based on different kinds of inputs. So if we could get it through our heads that thinking is a natural process and that as our awareness gets more subtle and more open and more, you know, as the tolerance builds from having connected with different kinds of experiences and having an office that's a cubicle or an office that's a palace and just looking at all the different kinds of experiences through which our life can move, there's a space that, of equanimity that develops that's um, really rather special where the marvelousness of life comes through and we're not so stuck on one piece of it. You know, we start to contemplate that the mind is active and how many mental states have we gone through in the last 48 hours even um, based on, you know, reading the headlines or hearing a bird or talking with someone or wishing that something would happen or feeling a little shut down or all those things, you know, that... Um, the heart-mind can accompany us through instead of kind of abandoning us into just sort of the raw experience of it, which is just more jolting than normal. The Buddhist word for suffering is dukkha, which means um, difficult space, and it relates to a bad ride in a chariot, like a um, something with a broken axle and no springs. It's a little bit like that. So inviting this experience of awareness to sort of um, help us move a little bit more smoothly through life is really wonderful, wonderfully worthwhile. And although we can't be mice and sit under a lamp and just do it, there's a certain amount of kind of trial and error and um, the helpfulness of being in community. I think that's actually part of it. It's kind of like if you are looking too much for the essential ingredient, you might miss um, the party boat. So I'd like to close with a little story that means um, meant a lot to me over the last couple of days that my husband and I, um, as he's in this retirement world, it's very interesting too, like we're meeting a, a lot of people who are retired and they sort of say like, you know, it's so weird. I walked away from that university and I never looked back. I, I didn't miss it. It's like it wasn't happening and life just filled up and, you know, I didn't need to be teaching classes and meeting a bunch of more freshmen and stuff. This is interesting how much conditioned we are by our environments and stuff. And of course, you know, there's some missing of like, God, when he said, when I told him that they shut off the phone line to his office before he really had to leave his office, he was upset and made him feel erased, kind of like the show goes on without you. But anyway, we were visiting a couple who were some friends of ours, and the um, one of the members of the couple had to retire early because they have really bad cancer, and um, their partner, this is a heterosexual couple, so it's a wife and husband, and um, the husband has a form of dementia that's completely impossible to understand, and they um, are vulnerable to different kinds of hallucinations and getting completely lost when they're driving for periods of time and stuff that, and they've been to, they've become, they're a very smart person, and um, they've learned a lot about all these things on the internet, but they can't control these certain things that happen in their mind. And the other one, the wife, um, expected to be dead last year and has lived on more. So they were talking about 
how incredible the spring feels when you didn't know you would be alive and that this feels like this extra time of life, um, that it's all like completely gravy, you know. Um, and they seemed, both of them in a certain way, like really at peace and not afraid. Um, we were sitting out behind their house and they have billions of bird feeders all around, so these birds are all going crazy there, and the squirrel was stealing from the birds, and I said, look at that bad squirrel, and they said, oh, the squirrel gets to have some, you know, it's okay. I'm like, man, in my house, I'd just chase those squirrels away, you know, and they're like, no, it was kind of like this beautiful thing where their activity was feeding birds and kind of sitting there and eating only certain amounts of different kinds of foods that they're, you know, the ones that are allowed, and um, the beauty of being there with them, and the feeling that, um, their time of life was a gift, you know, even though these, they were living with these very difficult things, that it seemed um, something meaningful to share about how our mind can approach our existence, because what happened to me right afterwards was I got in the car and I was like, oh, that was two hours away from my chapter five that I have to finish, you know, and, and I wondered about afterwards, I was thinking, like, how much of our... Um, the freneticness of our mind is conditioned by being afraid to die, kind of, in some way, like that if things will be incomplete, like we will never become what we should have become, or we won't finish a project, or we're not really somehow good enough, or we haven't... There's this um, feeling of a need to take a certain kind of form, you know, to be something, you know, when we already are something. And it's it's worth an effort to... um, think about the life it's almost like the flow of time in reverse or something not like we're on borrowed time but we're on extra time I find that relaxing so thank you for your kind attention and um, there's some time for questions now if anyone or observations anything that you would like to say or explore or reflect